0: Fantasy Football Today Dynasty. I am your host, Heath Cummings, and I am excited about today's show. We have a couple of two special guests from the Undroppables Scott Belanger, aka Jax Falcone, aka on Twitter, Dino Game Theory. And we've got Chalk from the Undroppables. You see, if you're watching here on YouTube, at 101Chalk on Twitter. Guys, thank you so much for being here. I am looking forward to, to talking to you. Let's just get started. And, and chalk, you can go first, and then and then Scott join right in. What do you guys have going on over at the Undroppables right now?
1: Yeah, so we have a ton of uh, exciting stuff right now. We're we're knee deep in uh, the rookie prospecting cycle, uh, diving in, looking at you know uh, the quarterback, running back, wide receiver, tight end prospects in the twenty twenty four class. Uh, so we're you know we're really doing our Uh, analysis of the prospects determining you know what our rankings are Uh, and speaking of rankings uh you know scott and i are doing a a full refresh of our our dynasty rankings kind of top down bottom up approach uh given you know all the the changing landscape in the nfl Uh, so i'll hand over to scott uh, to kind of touch on what else we're doing over at the Undroppables.
2: yeah absolutely well we're doing a lot um you know the Undroppables is definitely a collaborative of of passionate people creating content that's what we are um, and so, you know, we've got people doing all sorts of stuff, but, you know, obviously the, 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 basis of what Chalk and I do is try and make sure that we're giving actionable advice for, for dynasty gamers. Um, you know, my show is, is, is a, is a weekly show. It's the undrafted. I can find it where podcasts are found, but you know, on that, on that show, I bring in a, a variety of different dynasty minds and fantasy football minds to try and, you know, crack the, crack the code. Right. So it's a lot of fun. We have a lot of fun on that show, but you know, trying to, trying to be the very, very best dynasty gamers we can be. And, you know, we love fantasy football. We love football. But Chalk and I both found early on that we're we're kind of – we have a proclivity towards dynasty fantasy football, and we're very good at it. And we wanted to share some of our sort of secrets and things that we do and and, and practices that we sort of, you know, stick to that have helped us be successful over time. And that's, that's the genesis of what he and I do.
0: I, I do think that, like, this part, like dynasty – this segment of the fantasy football community probably draws those people who have had success, right? Like you yeah. don't want to be drafting these guys and keeping them forever if you finish 10th right. every year. <laughs> like, <Right>. True, <laughs> You want to play dynasty fantasy football because you think you're smarter than everyone in your redraft league, and now I'm going to yeah. go draft guys and get to keep them forever.
2: That's somewhat true for sure. I also think there's a bit of a, uh, a uniqueness to it where there's a lot of sort of you know churning of value. Um, You know, and if you're the type of person that can sort of see that coming and understand how to, you know, uh, sort of capitalize on value and understand rising and falling assets and all that sort of thing, then if you see the the game that way, it's kind of fun. I've also described it, Heath, and this may, you know, for those who play Madden, uh, Redraft is like playing in arcade mode. Dynasty is like playing on franchise mode. Yes,
0: a- absolutely. That was uh, I. I was all. I think I would always get to a point with that game, and I. I have it. My I play against my son every once in a while now. I. I don't play the the full dynasty mode, but. I'd always get to a point to where I didn't hardly find myself playing the football games anymore. Yeah, I would just simulate through all the game action, and I want to get to the trades and the draft draft. and all that stuff. Yes, so I do think that's probably not that uncommon amongst dynasty fantasy football managers. I think today's show is going to be great for you guys. We are going to get you an edge in your startup draft and your rookie draft, an off-season edge and in-season edge. We're going to talk about the art of dynasty and the anatomy of series. Of course, as we always do, we'll start with three questions for our guests. I'll have you both answer these questions. It can be the same answer, but uh, I'll address it to one of you first. The other one can follow. Chuck, we'll start with you. And just feel free to follow up, Scott. What's the biggest edge strategically in Dynasty Leagues right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Scott mentioned it um, just a second ago, but I think it's attacking the market inefficiencies that we're seeing uh, you know, across dynasty leagues, right? There's a disparity in perspectives and, and player takes uh, and player valuations. Uh, you know, I think a website that I like to actually, you know, really use uh, for more uh, like research purposes, like Keep Trade Cut. You know, I could yeah. see, you know, where the consensus or the crowd is kind of valuing certain players. Uh, you know, Jackson just recently tweeted something about uh, Dallas Goddard, you know, being a buy. And you know, for me, when I when I look at that and I compare it with you know Jackson uh, at my rankings. Our consensus rankings, and I notice a disparity or inefficiency in the market. Uh, I'm going to attack those, right? If I see a player that's being undervalued, uh, you know, I'm going to send out trade offers.
2: Yeah, I think um, for me, the other thing too, I, I love that what what, what Chuck just shared. I was looking. Um, I think taking a long term view. I think right now the the this most dynasty gamers are a bit fickle. And I think a lot of times they're sort of there's a there's a new sort of DFS mindset to uh, to dynasty where guys are making trades on a weekly basis, just trying to get the next new hotness for that week and win every week. And it's 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 actually quite impressive to watch some of these people play that way. But I think that's where there's a ton of value seeping out of these these transactions, uh, long term value where you can build that juggernaut. You know, dynasty is something where you know, you, you know, Ryan McDowell sort of famously coined productive struggle, and we do sort of a modified productive struggle in the way that we we, we actually don't like to struggle too much, but we like to understand that you know maybe pushing a little bit uh, into the future is, is is wise. But in doing that, it's easier to do sometimes when you're playing with really sort of a lot of win now DFS minded uh, gamers that are out there. So I think that's one of the the bigger uh, advantages that still exist uh, amazingly. In Dynasty,
0: yeah, there, there are a lot. I talk about and I, like I'm a sicko. My, I really enjoy, a teams at the end of their rope and and going through that rebuild process. Yeah, and I I'll talk about that on Twitter. And there are people who play Dynasty fantasy football who just can't imagine the idea of sacrificing one year's int- entry fee. Right. um Like it just they have no stomach for it. And that's fine. Like you you can play Dynasty in, in a variety of different ways. There's lots of ways to attack it. But, but I yes. do think you're right. Like, if you're playing in a league with people like that, it, it makes it much easier. Where it gets hard, and I've had this happen before too, is when you've got four guys thinking they're rebuilding at the same time. And yeah. then you, you, run, you maybe run short on buyers. Let's go, go to question number two, Scott, and we'll start with you here. So, uh, and in Shock, you kind of hit on this. Like, there are guys who are market efficiencies just as players. Um, who, who do you think the biggest edge in terms of player eval in Dynasty right now? And it doesn't have to necessarily be an individual, it could be an archetype of a player as well.
2: That, that that was interesting. I sort of um, read that question when you shared it a little bit differently. I just think there's like a, 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 a you want to be ready to be wrong about your 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 player takes. I think mm-hmm. you know one of the things we do or that people do uh, is they sort of have a player take and then they're afraid to sort of come off it because they'll look like they're you know I don't know I don't know why. To me, it's like be ready to be wrong. We say it all the time on our show and have a very fluid approach to player evaluation because there's always new information. So as soon as there's new information, add it to your evaluation and then have new evaluation and continuously be doing that. Uh, I think for us, you know, we use, I use film and data, um, you know, and I use film and data to try and understand a player's utilization. I think utilization of player in the NFL is something that I still think most gamers are not considering in dynasty. They, they sort of think, player good player bad that's it you know but in a lot of cases it's like well what is player x going to be asked to do at the next level um i think that's a very very big question you know um depending upon what type of player he was in college and all that sort of stuff and uh, i would just say that if you don't have the time to do that find an analyst or a couple analysts who who do and and follow them but if you can do the work yourself that's that's where that's where you can find a lot of inefficiencies in player eval
1: yeah um you know, I, I, I want to really echo what, what Jack's just saying. I think, you know, Keith will probably touch on this in a little bit, but, you know, using that Bayesian inference, right, being water, uh, being able to change the perspectives, like Jack said, be you ready to be wrong, um, you know, and I think that's the biggest edge you can have with player evaluation. When you when you start anchoring down, right, into a player take and you, you uh, lock in, like, I, I don't like this player or I really like this player or one of your league mates has those sentiments, right, and you're able to kind of, exploit that or take advantage of those kind of perspectives or locks. Um, I think that's, that's really an edge that you can take uh, with player evaluation. And then, of course, Jax going to talk about this later, but you know, using archetypes, using the anatomy series that he's put a lot of time into uh, to really evaluate players and, and, and understand how do they fit against or compare against, you know, the most successful or the players that really kind of set the mold in terms of, you know, elite production.
0: I I do think that's one area where still doing so much redraft and weekly projections and weekly rankings really helps me and might help dynasty players who are having a hard time with that embracing being wrong. If you want to embrace being wrong, just do weekly projections and rankings for a season and see how wrong you are every single week about if you're if you're really good, 35 percent of players and then recognize that that happens on a season long basis just as much.
2: Heath, we had we had talked about that on an earlier show that uh Chalk and I had done that we found that doing projections gave us a huge advantage. It is an awful thing to do. I don't <laughs> recommend doing projections to anyone. Like I don't <laughs> recommend it. It is not fun. It is I a, am doing
0: a, I am starting 2024 projections in February. <laughs> it's painstaking. It's, so, it's yes. too
2: much work. It's not fun. <laughs> right. There's no real Payoff. It's kind of just like, oh, those are done now. All right, I guess I did them. You know, but what really happens is when you start to look at each team, you start to say, okay, oh, well, wait a second. Where's the where are the targets going to come from for player X or Y? And I have to figure this out. They, they can't all have 150 targets. You know, if they're only really going to throw the ball 400 times, it's like so. You start to really have to place these things. And when you have a finite resource of targets uh, or carries or whatever. Uh, sometimes it's the other way around too. Like you'll get to a team. You're like, well, someone's got to get the ball here. Who the hell is it going right. to be? You know, you start to find the sleeper that way. So those are two ways that, that for sure, man, I, that, that one has been a, a, an eye opener for Chalk and I.
0: So yeah, we'll go to Chalk, Chalk first here on the third question. Then Scott, that you can follow up. Uh, your friends are starting a new dynasty league. Let's assume these are not your analyst friends. These are your, your non fantasy football analyst friends starting a new dynasty league. And they said, you know what? You're the expert. One setting, one rule. We're not even going to vote on it. You get to choose. What What are you using that one rule on, Sean? Superflex. <laughs> that is the most common answer <laughs> that we get. Um, I ask this question to almost every guest we have on, and almost immediately. Now, I will say, I do think when it comes to our analysis, what, the analysis that I see around the industry, it's it's maybe more weighted in terms of superflex leagues than the number of actual Dynasty Superflex leagues there are relative to one quarterback <laughs> leagues. Uh, it's kind of like when PPR became a thing. We all jumped to PPR faster than than the, everybody that doesn't do this for a living did, and then eventually everything caught up. And so yeah. maybe five years, ten years from now, a major- maybe five years, a majority of Dynasty leagues are Superflex. I know a majority of new Dynasty leagues are Superflex leagues. It's just all those uh, legacy leagues that are not – uh, Scott, do you have do you have a second rule besides Superflex? Because yeah. I know that you seem very much on board with that one.
2: Hell yeah! And and for me, it's like uh, I didn't even think of Superflex because it's so like obviously. <laughs> but um, yeah, we do a lot of Superflex leagues now for sure, and I, it does actually create you know strategy around the quarterback position, which I think is great. You know, you actually right. have to do quarterback eval before. I was just like, man, eh, I can just plug and play. I can just I'll find a quarterback. I'm not worried about quarterback. So quarterback's less of an edge, whereas now it is. But the one for me, I'll, I'll challenge where you went to PPR. We yeah. need to change. This is my hobby horse uh, setting for sure. Chalk knows it. It is half PPR, half point per first down. Uh, I've seen I, I've seen Ian Harditz, uh post. You know these two plays. One, you know these two plays went for the same amount of fantasy points or whatever. And it's like this awful little dump off catch in this big first down run or something. And it's like it's so true. You know uh, conversions uh, are the biggest. They're one of the biggest stats in the sport. If you just look at conversion rate, third down and fourth down conversions, the team that converted more probably won the game. I mean, it is so huge. If you're watching your favorite team and they convert a big third and one, you are fist pumping. You're not fist pumping when it's third and 15 and they dump off to some little scat back for seven. You're not. You're just like, all right, punt, fine, whatever. So I like to reward the plays that are big in real football, half PPR, half point per first down. And it just levels out some of those, you know, those nonsense plays and elevates Nick Chubb's
0: two-yard run on fourth and one. I I I, I agree one hundred percent. I the pushback I think that you get on the half point per first down is there's not a lot of sites projecting point per first 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 downs for the year. Yeah. And so how how do I know? And I've seen some stuff out there. I think generally you can take yards and, and multiply it by .05 and you get pretty mm. close to what first downs are going to be. Certain players, obviously, of different types, produce more than others. But I do wonder, and and you can start here, Scott. I'm going to go to question number four, I guess, before we get into uh, some Super Bowl talk. But I, you're, you've you got a league that's been going for five years, 10 years, whatever. Yeah. And you've started it as a one-quarterback league, and you've started it as a full PPR or a non-PPR league. Like I really don't find any way to make these changes in an existing league? If you started a dynasty league, in terms of scoring settings, unless it's something that, I mean, it's hard to hard to imagine even one that wouldn't impact the players on a roster. I guess you could try to do right. it three years in advance, two years in advance, but there's really no way to change these types of scoring settings in, in the middle of a dynasty, right? I, I do agree in, in
2: principle with you a thousand percent.
0: I think the only way is unanimous.
2: Um, in other words, if I've set up my team so focused on non PPR and one quarterback that I have no quarterback depth. I've got no future picks. I've got no way to even get it, but I'm dominating in this fashion. And you're like, we're going to change it up. You got to get me on board too. Everybody in the league has to be mm-hmm. on board. If everybody's on board and everybody agrees, then no problem. Then just do it. Then everybody's cool with it. But there's really no way to to sort of make everybody do. I, I totally agree. Cause you know, there's too much strategy. I mean, it's the number one thing we recommend, Chalk and I, in going into a dynasty league is check the scoring, check the settings, <laughs> use your strategy specifically around that. So if it's our number one uh, bit of advice, you can't just change it based on that. So, yeah, I agree with you a thousand percent, but okay.
0: unanimous, go right ahead. Right. it It is Super Bowl week. Uh, we, we're seeing all the the videos from Vegas now. And so I we we ought to at least talk about the game just a little bit. The Chiefs and the 49ers. I know nobody can tell that's watching on YouTube who I will be cheering for in that game. <laughs> but I, I I thought it'd be worthwhile to get a couple of smart guys on here and ask them how they thought the game was going to go. Chalk, you have a you have a Super Bowl prediction?
1: Um my my heart or my head, because um, uh, you know, I, I think <laughs> I think my, my- Well, I mean, I, I, I think the 49ers are going to take it. I think this is their, their year. Sorry. Sorry, Heath.
0: (laughs) That's no, that's okay. That's okay. Was it, was that your, now I do wonder, was that your heart or your head?
1: Uh, that that was actually my heart. <laughs> that was your heart, okay? <laughs> Excellent.
0: That makes me feel a lot better, Scott. Scott, what do you got here?
2: <laughs> you know, it's funny because every single game. I mean, even last week. You know, we've now the the chorus of never bet against Patrick Mahomes, even though he didn't score in the second half. But still, there's some magic there to Patrick, and I will not be choosing against him. Also, I think the bigger force at play is Oz Pearlman who earlier in the year uh, at Jets uh, Hard Knocks picked the Jets to win 31-21. But really, he didn't say that. He told Meikle Hardman, you will win 31-21. to oh. So uh, Oz Perlman, I'm not going against him. Chiefs, 31-49ers, 21,
0: book it. Yeah, I, I think I would probably say Chiefs and the under. If I was and it just because, like, their defense, it's so weird because even when I saw a breakdown the other day of how these two teams have spent their salary cap, yeah. and the Chiefs have spent so much more on offense, and the 49ers spent so much more on defense, and the Chiefs' defense is so much so better good. than the 49ers and their it's offense. So good.
1: Yeah. It's <laughs> but so other
0: good. than Mahomes, their offense is so much better than the Chiefs. Um, yeah. it, it is, it listen, I, I think the reason it's so hard to bet against Mahomes is it's hard to believe this will be a game that's not a game in the fourth quarter. And yep. it's hard to imagine Patrick Mahomes getting the ball on the final drive or with five minutes left and not going and doing what he needs to do. That's it. um, it'll probably happen at some point in the next ten <laughs> to fifteen years, though. Yeah, uh, Brady comes back. Here, here's a, here, well, that that was that was painful.
2: Um, Brady, Brady Brady handed uh, Mahomes his first regular season loss, yep. uh, his first playoff loss, and first Super Bowl loss.
0: Yeah. I, yeah, that, that is, that is very true. And I am hurting again now. All right, let's move on. Let's, let's look at these two teams from a dynasty perspective though. Do you yeah. have a favorite player from the chiefs or the 49ers at cost in dynasty right now? I
2: love this question. I wonder chalk, if you go first, cause I've got mine kind of locked in, but this is a good question. Heath, what do you think,
1: Chuck? I mean, um, I think for me, it's, it's Brock Purdy, right? But, the, the, you know, I think he's a an enigma for many for many people. Um, but I think it's Brock Purdy, and I'll I'll probably touch on him throughout the show today because um you know it's a topic or a player that's come up quite a bit for me.
0: And he's he's viewed mostly as like a a, a high end mid range QB two, I think, for dynasty purposes right now. And I I I agree with you. I've got him inside of my top twelve just because I I do think like why is Kyle Shanahan going somewhere? Like, take one of those guys away, I still think
1: Purdy's going to be pretty good. Yeah, I mean, just the weapons he has, the offense he's in, right? So, yeah.
2: Yeah, I gave this some thought, uh, Heath. It's funny because it's certainly not any of the um, Chiefs wide receivers there. They're they're, they're Rashi Rice, and Rashi Rice is not a buyout. He's because he's so steamed up. I think, you know, there's a really interesting conversation to have about Rashi right now. I think he definitely exceeded expectations, and I think he's going to have a role in that offense. I think um, – what was I listening to? Oh, Rich Rebar and J.J. Zacharisen's recent pod uh, was really good, and they talked a little bit about Rashi and some of his limitations. No. He was, like, uh, first in the NFL in yards after the catch or something like that right there with Debo. And so his dot was super low, caught a lot of close to the line of scrimmage plays and took him deep very very interesting analysis. I'll be looking into that as well with my uh, Rashi rice takes but what about George Kittle? George Kittle has been like a top five tight end on a seasonal basis. He has been so so good and for some reason they hold the offense against him but you know at tight end you're looking for ceiling you're looking for a player that can that can win you weeks. George Kittle is 100 100 that he is the best tight end in the NFL uh, you know w- from an NFL perspective. Uh, he's still a a, a a productive uh player uh for fantasy and he's super efficient and he's been super efficient over the last his whole career he's actually 10 yards per target over the last five seasons right. uh absolutely incredible that laps the field better than Andrews better than all the tight ends that that sort of qualify. So if he's that efficient, Look, you just have to imagine sometimes when the volume gets turned up for him. It's certainly possible. As you said, their defense didn't look as good. Next year could be a, a more pass-heavy offense. Debo sometimes gets hurt. Um, you know, I know there's limitations with Kittle in that offense, but there's not limitations with him as a player. Um, right. You know, we project in injuries to fade him. He's 30 years old, but, you know, tight end, hey, if you can get a two- or three-year window with an elite tight end, right now he's basically valued as the tight end 10 behind a lot of, uh, of tight ends, including even Kelsey. Um, you know, Kelsey might not even play next year. I think you, I think he will though. But um, I, I think, I think George Kittle's a huge buy. The other one, if you're really going to talk about Kittle, maybe going ways, maybe it's like uh, Noah Gray or something like that. That could be a, a player to
0: buy. Sneaky. Yeah, I, I think that that Kittle one it it highlights something that I want to talk about here when we come back from the break. But that idea that yes, I mean he's turned 30, so for a chunk of the league, he's lost a large amount of, amount of his appeal. That's, yes you'll look at a lot of trade charts and or trade va- va- or just the evaluations and he's being pushed down by those 33% of dynasty managers who are thinking I don't want anybody 30 years old. Right. And I think it, it kind of we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more later but he's the type of guy where if you're a contender you need to be willing to make an offer for him that's more than what he's actually valued at because he's more valuable to you than he is to a lot of people in the league. Yeah. Let's take a short break here. When we come back, we'll get into the art of Dynasty. Okay, so we are back. Chalk, I, I want to start with you. You've you've written this series on, on the Undroppables, the art of Dynasty, uh, 15 chapters. You basically wrote a book on the internet, and it's fantastic. <laughs> uh just kind of tell everybody what what you set out to do and uh, what they can expect if they go look at it
1: yeah so um yeah i mean you know we were talking a little bit about this before the before the show started heath and you know the art of dynasty is really you know my way of approaching uh, the game of dynasty fantasy football and applying kind of my own kind of career background and my own kind of you know i guess life experiences and you know some of the books i've read of course i think we've all read the art of war so that's kind of where the inspiration for this really came from but really taking the strategic approach uh and looking at the nuances of how to long-term plan and how do you manage a dynasty team uh you know i come from a legal slash risk management background uh i'm not a data analyst like i'm not a spreadsheet merchant um so you know my my contribution uh to the community uh, i felt that was to kind of lean on my my experience and, and my education which is kind of what i did right focusing more on strategy and uh you know how to approach the game how to plan how to construct rosters and and pivot between competing goals so so that's really kind of the essence of uh, what the our dynasty is and what i had set out to do
0: now, scott i know that you've uh probably been through through every every inch of this. And so I, I just wanted like what if you're telling somebody what's the what's the best part of the art of dynasty, what what would you tell them?
2: That's a tough question. Um y- y- yeah, I think uh I think it, it it's that process over player take too. It's yep. like when whenever you're sort of you know so many people are you know the questions on Twitter is who won this trade or you know and, and I always tell Chalk I'm always like give me more information. I need more. I, I don't know who won that trade because I don't know what this other guy, what's his, what's his end game? Where is he going? Where's his team at? What's the, there's just so much. So when you have all these situations, you really want to be situation understanding. And, and then you make some, some moves and, you know, I've made terrible trades in, in my day. Um, <laughs> you no, know, really. I mean, we all right. have, you look oh, back, yes. son of a, what was I thinking? You can't win like that. You can't win thinking, Oh, I'm just going to win every single deal. I know the players better than everybody else. You know, that sort of, that Bayesian process to me is the biggest part is like taking the information, being, being so happy to be wrong. Sometimes and just say, not a problem. I'm going to move forward with the new information and move forward to me ba- being Bayesian. And that, that part of the, of the series is something that, you know, we challenge ourselves to do in every way, you know, even with things like the art of dynasty, if there's something in there, that's not right anymore. Like, let's change it. Let's not stick to it. Nope. That's what we said. We had to stick to it. So, that whole idea is exactly what, you know, and really in business or entertainment or whatever you're doing, that's what you have to do. You have to stay relevant and, and continue to move forward, not look back.
0: You, you brought up trades, terrible trades. And I, every time I, I hear that term, I think about, <clears throat> I was in, I'm in John Bosch's uh, auction addicts league. And, and you know how a John Bosch league is, I assume like, yes. And this was year one and it, there's no trade deadline, of course. Um, and so I, I, this was the peak Michael Thomas got hurt. I think it was week 14 or week 15 and I had made it to the semifinals and I was pushing. So I, I traded him away for Cooper cup and knowing that I was sacrificing the future to just get these last couple of weeks and win the, the inaugural year. And I cup got hurt the next week. I lost in the championship game and was just devastated for a couple of months that i'd given up michael thomas a 77 percent catch rate guy 150 catches like this guy's gonna do this for five more years and then cooper cup turned into cooper cup and michael thomas never really played again so right you like, never know right it's um even when you think you lose a trade sometimes you don't the chapter one here chalk makes sense startup drafts do you do you have a Just kind of a prevailing sentiment about startup drafts, like something you can do regardless of of where your draft position is, regardless of what kind of league it is. Like, this is the thing you do to win startup drafts.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, Jax and I talk about this often. Jax Jax actually, you know, kind of wrote the initial kind of book on on this tactic and the cornerstone strategy in startup drafts is, you know, trading back, you know, um, you know, I think, I think nowadays it's very popular and very common and sometimes extremely challenging to trade back, especially your early first round picks. Uh, but I think that's really the key, right? Being able to move around the draft board while accumulating, you know, long-term assets such as rookie picks uh, or uh, some of those like, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh round picks uh, in kind of building teams, you know, more of around, um, depth and, and long-term assets versus trying to trade up and getting yourself, you know, two elite assets while giving up, you know, mortgaging the future. So I would say that would be probably the cornerstone strategy. for Scott, that,
0: um, that the, the idea of trading back, does that necessarily infer that you are drafting for year two or drafting for year three? Or can you take that type of approach and still be someone who's competing in year one?
2: I love it when a league mate says to me, or how the heck did he get all the future draft picks and he still got the best team. So yeah. no, I don't think you're competing for next year. You're competing right away. It does depend upon the, I we, we talk about this all the time. It does depend upon the, 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 you know, roster construction of the league. In other words, if it's a 10 team league, start eight, you don't really need to trade back uh, because where are you trading? to? all, you're only starting eight players, right. you know? So, but most of these dynasty leagues now are super flex. They are start 10 or more. I, I play in some start 14. I mean, crazy right. stuff. Um, you know. But if you're starting 11 or 12, 12 especially, that means depth now becomes more important than it is in a start 8 or start 9 or start 10. So it's 12 team and more and 11 starting positions or more, trading back becomes even more valuable to year one. But you know, I hear a lot of people you know, will say, well, I tried to trade back, but I couldn't. No, you didn't try and trade back. Because if you do want to trade back, you generally can. Uh, I, depending upon your startup, most people play with like an eight-hour clock, which is a long time. But you know, because we're all busy, we're doing different things. We've got to take care of kids and sleep and work and all the you – know, right? So we play this eight-hour clock. And, and I always argue a lot of times you might be on the clock, and you may be one of only one or two people who know that you're on the clock. So it's not like nobody wants your pick. It's that nobody even cares that you're picking. Right. So sometimes you have to sort of start that conversation. Maybe you sit on the clock a little bit. You know, maybe you say, hey, you know, you send out a few DMs. You start maybe send out a couple of little teaser trades, you know, knowing your league, knowing who's up and knowing who might want a player that's up reaching out to you because Patrick Mahomes is on the on the board. And I say, hey, man you know, Patrick fell to 103. Do you want to make a move here? And you start saying, well, maybe not. And then you start thinking about it for an hour. And then you call me back and you go, actually, what are you thinking about? You know, So patience a little bit when you, especially early in the draft, look late in the draft, you sit on an eight hour clock in round 15, you might get a little bit of flack, right. but early on those picks and those leverage points are super important. And if you don't engage with somebody, at least one of those other managers in, in trade talks, you probably didn't do your due diligence. And- I, Look, I again, it. if it's a if it's a low money league and you don't really want to spend all that time, I get it. But if you want to play the strategy as it's meant to be, you got to engage.
0: I think that's that's one of the biggest things, and like I hear a lot of people say, I can't get any trades done, mm-hmm. and it's it's often because either you're trying to quote win every trade and you know in a way that they can't, or it's because you just like it's not easy like maybe you have one or two guys in your league that are accustomed to sending trade offers out regularly, the rest of them are mostly responding to offers or phone calls that they get. If you want to be someone who trade, I I've multiple times had a player that I wanted to get rid of for a second or a third round pick. And I just go down the draft order and like who, who will take the, who will give me a second round pick and offer everybody in the league. Um, But you're right. It does take some time and some people don't want to spend that much time at and I get that, <laughs> right, Ch- Chalk. Chapter five is titled "The Iron Bank." Mm. What What in the world is the Iron Bank, and how do I get one?
1: Yeah, so um, I mean, you know, I can't take credit for coining the term "Iron Bank." That's one of our old friends, Mike Liu, uh, yeah, who coined the term, you know, years ago. So, you know, hat tip to Mike. Uh, I don't know if you're listening. I know you retired from the the content game, but I uh, want to shout you out there. And the Iron Bank is really you know, a vault or storage of long-term assets that, you know, can only appreciate in value, right? So they're insulated from, you know, external factors that, you know, can impact the value, right? So for example, you know, a player is, is susceptible to injury, to trade, to a change of coaching staff or scheme, right? And any of those things that happen or he's benched or maybe, you know, there's some negative news on him. Any of those things happen, that player's value uh, value is immediately affected negatively. Uh, but for the most part, rookie picks uh, are those types of assets that are really immune, right? Rookie draft picks, especially those first-round picks, uh, is, are the safest assets to own in Dynasty, and they're going to increase in value. So the Iron Bank is really storing uh those rookie draft picks, not just in 2024, if we're like, looking at this year, but if you're able to get 2025 picks, even 2026 picks. I'm in leagues where people are just sending off 20, 2026 picks like... You know, it's two years off, like, who cares? You know, I'll throw you a second in, right? And as a kind of a, a kicker in a deal. So that's where it is. It's accumulating these draft picks. Uh, and whether a draft class is strong or it's a good class or bad class, you know, deep or not, uh, you know, those first round picks are always going to hold value. Uh, and then when the pick is on the clock, you know, uh, the value actually starts to increase. So the closer we get to these rookie drafts, the closer we get to combine and NFL draft, right? The the, the fervor and the, the the hype around rookies, you know, continues to increase. A lot of Dynasty gamers are even, you know, not really paying attention until February, March. And then right. that's when they're starting to pay attention. So, uh, yeah, that, that's really what the Iron Bank is, is throwing that, um, throwing those draft picks.
0: Now, now Scott, I, I know that, like, every Dynasty league is different. Um, our The league that we talk about often, our YOLO Dynasty league, is is full of a, a lot of people that I, I can't convince that they should value draft picks a little bit more based on where they are. Um, and then, so in that in that type of league, I think uh, like accumulating the iron bank is is a little bit easier. Some leagues, though, sure. it seems to be impossible to get somebody to value current players because that the obsession within the league on future picks is so. That, like, does this concept change at all depending on your league mates? Is is there a, a a type of league maybe where, or maybe if we're playing with all analysts, where maybe the picks do get overvalued a little bit?
2: Maybe, but I don't think so, actually. I, yeah. I think the Iron Bank is one of those things where it exists and you just need to find a way. Look, maybe you, instead of getting, you know, a second, you get two thirds. You know, maybe that's the, the economy right. in that league and it's still worth it. It's still worth, you know, understanding that that's where I want to store value. And when we talk about storing value, we're talking about a team that may or may not really be trying to win, but, or maybe it is, you know, I mean, if you sold Tyler Lockett for an early second, you know, before the season, people would have been like, wow, it's a little light or whatever, you know, future second, that's it. But now all of a sudden Tyler Lockett is worth nothing. So, you know, if you've gotten two thirds for him, people would have yelled at you and called you, you know, crazy. You know, I remember I once sold Darnell Mooney after his first year or something like that for kind of light, you know, a couple thirds or something. And people were very upset. Like, how do you give away a young, you know, stud receiver like that? And the the league kind of admonished me. And then all of a sudden, he turned out to not be quite anything. He's actually not worth much. And you know, I ended up, you know, turning those picks into value and and going from there. So sometimes you just have to have the will to to move off of a a, a, a redundant asset on your team. You know, if you're if you're starting a guy and he's scoring points for you, doesn't mean you just have to sell to, to store value. But when you're looking at your lineup, you're like, man. What am I doing with all these older receivers? I need to get off them. Sometimes packaging them, but no matter what the strategy is to get there, you do want to try and store as much value as you can when you're storing
0: value in the Iron Bank, period. End of story. Yeah. Okay, Chalk. Chapter six and seven talk about rookie pick values and rookie drafts. And you kind of hit on one of the questions that I had. Like, we are rapidly approaching, if we haven't already gotten there, to the point where it does seem like there's a pretty big shift in the, in the opinion of rookie pick values amongst league members, you're right. They're starting to actually think about the fact that there's going to be a new draft, (laughs) new class of players coming in. Uh, So talk a little bit about how you value rookie picks and then does your trade down principle only apply to startup drafts or do you do that in rookie drafts as well?
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think with rookie picks and, you know, the values, you know, I want to give another shout out to uh, one of my friends, Eric, who put out a really cool, uh, you know, rookie pick value chart and, you know, in, in rookie pick values, they go on a cycle every year. It's the same cycle, right? So, you know, in season, right. They're not r- worth that much, right. You might have a league mate that's willing just to throw in a, a rookie pick or do a pick swap, you know, maybe it's a, you know, i send you my third, but you send me a second back and then, you know, I'll give you a player or, you know, or whatnot. Uh, and then, you know, and then as you kind of circle around, you know, end of the season, right. There's teams that are now, trying to really go for it and go all in so they're going to just start selling rookie picks right i want to i want to go for the ship so i'm going to like throw in some some rookie picks till i get there uh put me over the top and then and then they kind of you know they kind of start to accumulate value again right now like we're in february so as we get closer and you know i think when the pick gets on the clock i mean that's when the value really peaks out and um to the extent you can really hold your picks until you're you're certain what the what the prospect, you know, rankings kind of look like to you. Like right now, what we're, we're seeing like often is like the 106, like the cutoff right. uh, in a lot of these 2024 drafts, especially in a super flex setting. Uh, Cause after that, maybe the elite tier kind of ends uh, which kind of brings me to the next point where you said, you know, uh, there's a trading back philosophy also apply to rookie drafts. And I think, yes, it does. Uh, and this is where, you know, having a tier based, you know, projection, you know, kind of based a process and rankings, Uh, is very helpful right because then you can identify you know me dropping from you know this is a conversation from maybe the 104 to the 106 this year um maybe that's the move I want to make or maybe from the 105 to the what you know 107 I the move I want to make because you know there's a player like Roma Dunze that I really like and maybe he's going to probably fall the 107 and you know if I have 105 you know I'll take that bet and I'll, I'll take a little bit on top whether it's you know, maybe another pick swap later on and, and, and really trading back doesn't mean I have to gouge the other the other manager or take another pick, uh, you know, like a like a plus pick, but just a pick swap, right? Where, you know, I, I give you a little bit here, but then I'm gonna get a favorable move up, you know, somewhere else. Um, but I, I would say kind of using that approach uh is, is very helpful and, and kinda of having a you idea of like who are some of the targets, right? Um in, in the rookie draft. Like in twenty twenty three it was you know, it was classic to kind of get back into the second round or move back into the second round from the late first because, you know, a lot of people were maybe steaming up, you know, someone like Dalton Kincaid in like the early or mid first. Uh, we were looking at Sam, yeah, looking at Sam Laporta in the second. So I was like, hey, well, I like Sam Laporta just as much, if not a little bit better than Dalton Kincaid. I think they're both extremely great uh, tight, young tight ends. But hey, why not trade back to the second? Maybe I'll pick up another second on the process, and then I'll also take Jaden Reed. So that's kind of what happened often with Jacks and I, and, and as a common example of trading back in a rookie draft, um, you know, and, and what that can produce. And,
0: and yeah, I, yeah. I, I want to hit on on that idea of rookie pick values and peaking this time of year or in, in a couple of months when the actual rookie draft happens, Scott. Because the other side of that is, it can be really dangerous as a contender to trade picks for players this time of year, right? So when you're, when you're considering like maximizing that pick value in a situation where you've got a true contender, are you trying to add a player while still adding a lesser pick or are you just not really interested in trading for players this time of year? I'm almost never trading picks right now. Like
2: you would, I I don't even know. You'd have to do something. Let's just say
0: during the rookie draft, like oh, during yeah. so, the draft. So you're going to say clock because in April.
2: Yeah, that's different. Um, so then it's then it's a matter of, yeah, then that's a great time to because now you're leveraging the height of the value of the pick. Right. Um, you know, I always say, you know, last year, right. Like, there's no more fun thing to do than to push the button for Bijan Robinson. There's no more fun thing. Like it's so fun to be on the clock, be like, beep, and you hear the thing, and then you have got Bijan, like, <laughs> that's super fun. It's so it, because of that it's super hard to trade away the pick that is Bijan Robinson. But if you did so, you would have won, right? Because Bijan could never have held the value that he that he held before he was an actual NFL player. He was destined to be a top ten, but not necessarily destined to be the number one running back in in fantasy. And he didn't end up being the number one running back in fantasy. Now he hasn't lost value, but he kind of did from that pick. So so being able to sort of sell that pick like right now, Caleb, you know, Caleb, people are sort of valuing him that pick. Some are valuing him at his ceiling, which is like top five, you know, dynasty quarterback. Well, yeah, I'll sell at that price because that's his that's the ceiling. I mean, he can he might be that. And if I can get that type of value, then I've sold even. But if he's not that, then I've profited. So it's it's a tough thing to do because, of course, I want to press the button for him. One other thing I wanted to mention that that Chalk was talking about, it's like, Understanding the tiers is absolutely huge because we did that. I traded, I was in the 110, 111 area uh, in a bunch of drafts. And the pick that was Dalton Kincaid, I traded many a times. I traded it for a future first and maybe a second or a third that year. And so I banked a future first and I sometimes picked up Laporta or I picked up Tank Dell or something like that. And so to have, you know, a, or Jaden Reed, those were the, or maybe Marvin Mims too. Sorry, guys. Um, but, you know, but those are the types of players, those four guys were the types of players I was targeting there. And, you know, Mims misses, but even still, even if that Mims misses, I have a future first in tow for that Dalton Kincaid pick. Um, and I remember, Heath, you you will remember this too. We remember the class with Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith and all those players, and it was Michael Carter and Trey Sermon were the two running backs. Yeah. And I remember picking, if I had like two early thirds or a late second you know, I would trade those two picks. I did it in a number of drafts to get just ahead of the Trey Sermon, Michael Carter picks. And you, you, I ended up with Jalen Waddle, Elijah Moore. Now, Elijah Moore didn't exactly work out, but getting into that tier was, was a huge uh, way to trade up. So I thought there was value trading up there. So it's really just understanding the value of or at least the perceived value of what those players are and, and, and using your capital to move around the board to, to maximize value in your rookie draft
0: great stuff great stuff chalk I want to make sure we have time to get into uh, the anatomy of series here in just a second here so I, I do have one more question for you and we'll just go to you on this one chapter 10 Bayesian inf- inference uh, wh- what what do these words mean together and how does it apply to me having DJ Moore projected as a top five wide receiver two years ago and not last year
1: yeah so um you know it's <laughs> Bayesian inference you know be water right it's changing your opinions and takes about a player when you get new information. Every day, we process so much content information on players, that, but we still get stuck in take lock, which is kind of mind-boggling, right? Like we, we're hounded we're with new information. And what we need to do with Bayesian inference is take this new information, compare it to what we already know, and create a new or modified opinion, right? The only wrong take that you're really gonna have is not being open to change, right? So. Um, you know, having DJ Moore, you know, top five for, you know, consecutive seasons, right? But he wasn't producing, right? So, like, for those seasons before, like, maybe he wasn't producing those top fives. But now, you know, we're seeing maybe that, you know, he's starting to really, you know, explode. So maybe we kind of go back into, you know, considering that. And, you know, real quick, I said I was going to talk about Brock Purdy, but I'm going to leave this as an example of Bayesian being water. The former Mr. Irrelevant, no draft capital, 49ers at Trey Lance, QB with high draft capital, all the hype in the world. Um, And then uh, Purdy came on the scene and produced at the high level at the end of last season. I mean, it wasn't a full sample size, but it was enough. Many refused to change their perspective. Doubling, tripling down on Trey Lance is the guy, right? And what do we know, right? We know that that was the wrong, that was the wrong take. So be flexible, read nuances, don't be prideful in your takes, and adjust.
0: Great, great stuff. Let's take one more short break, and then uh, we will get into the anatomy of... Okay, we are back, Scott. We uh, we've got We've got about fifteen minutes here. I ought to be plenty of time. Just just kind of tell everybody what the anatomy of series is all about. Um, I know I saw the the Twitter thread about the quarterback position just just a couple weeks ago. So just kind of kind of break that down for us.
2: Yeah, it started. Gosh, it's been like five years now or something like that. But I, I originally started it when there would be a lot of. Uh, what are they, spreadsheet, uh, you know, whatever you want to call yeah. These data guys that would put out R squared on like, you know, they'd be like yards per route run or, you know, some sort of thing. And they'd be like the R squared of this is that. And, and I found myself kind of understanding what they were talking about, but I kind of knew for sure that most gamers were like, what's this geeky stuff? And what they were basically trying to figure out the the, the data guys was, is there any signal to looking at, you know, this data point, when evaluating you know a a prospect and I thought well that's kind of cool but they're not saying it right they're not talking to the people I said let me dumb it down I'm good at that (laughs) so I basically said hey look this is a fun way to digest you know the sort of profile of elite players you know and so I just took you know the top whatever it was the top 12 dynasty quarterbacks at the time um, and I've done it every year since or the top, you know, 15 or 16 dynasty running backs at the time. And I just sort of took characteristics they share. Hey, what what's the size of all these guys? You know, look at it and go, wow, they're all above 210. What a coincidence, you know, or whatever the case might be. You know, they all ran faster than 455. Who knew that 15 of the 15 ran that fast? So if you're looking at a guy who ran a 47, Probably not, you know, the guy potentially, you know, or at least so it's just a way to identify the sort of general profile of elite players at their position, and then you can take that information and sort of apply it to the incoming class. The other thing that's been really fun, Heath, with it, and I now we're starting to get fun is we're actually watching how that profile changes. I know you're right. going to get there, and that's been. You know, a lot of people ask me why didn't you just take the top five, uh, top twenty, you know, players over the last five years and look at it that way? And I said, well, I'm not looking back. I'm trying to look forward with this. You know, so that was that was sort of the impetus of of what it is. And I think people like interacting with it. It's fun.
0: Well, I think this is kind of a, a good place to co- combine chalk what we the, the the last two things we've talked about. Like yeah. yes, there there is this th- these qualities that these guys all share, but it's not necessarily going to be the same qualities five years from now, or even two or three years from now, right? Bingo.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, I, and like Jacks put out, like you, you said, Jacks put out the quarterback thread just a couple weeks ago, and uh, you know what I did was I kind of quote tweeted him, riding his coattails a bit, and I, I I compared right, like hey, this is the the change in the rushing yards, right? That we're seeing in the anatomy, the threshold, right? This is the change in efficiency metrics, right? And I started to kind of, you know, break down in, in, in terms of like, okay, what are we seeing now? Quarterbacks are a little bit smaller, right? They're more mobile, right? They're more, active. so like, we're starting to see a small change based off of the changing of the guard, right? So, the, you know, applying the same principles of Bayesian, taking that new information and then applying it to what Jax is doing Right, and I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to to combine those two processes.
0: So I do want to talk just a little bit about like how how that profile has changed in the last five years, and I'll just kind of start by something that I seem to have noticed. Chuck, you said quarterbacks are getting a little bit smaller. Scott, it seems like like almost everybody's getting smaller, right? Like these guys that have succeeded, and it kind of started maybe maybe it kind of started with that Waddle class, but last year we saw Tank Dell. Like we are seeing guys and and a, and a just a bunch of running backs coming in that were too small that are now averaging seven yards per carry somehow. Uh, yeah. Is is it just like is that a universal truth that the the size requirements we used to have aren't are not as important?
2: Yeah, Heath, it's pretty interesting because you know I'm a I'm a little older, okay. you know. Not to not to spoil the, the 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 surprise, but you know, so I've been playing a long time. And for me, you know, and I'm sure it's the same for you, Heath. When when we we're, you know, 10 years ago playing fantasy football, Tank Dell would have been off my board. I wouldn't right. have even considered Tank Dell because there's no way he can compete at the on the outside. You need Michael Irvin, you need, you know, Andre Johnson, you need these outside guys that can that can play through contact, they allow contact down the field. Remember when they actually said, look, you can't touch him after five yards. That was like a new rule like that wasn't like that, they were literally able to just you know fist fight out there that has totally changed so the game is changing now there's more three wide receiver or even four wide receiver or even five wide receiver sets you know more wide receivers are on the field they're targeting the slot at a higher rate the a dot is coming down they're actually targeting closer to the line of scrimmage that that doesn't seem to make sense but that's what's happening passes are coming out quicker completion percentages up you can't hit the receivers otherwise you're targeting helmet to helmet out so the smaller receivers benefit from that in every single way and the anatomy led us to that and absolutely I was all over Tank Dell and my you know sort of who I am would have been out but because we sort of said hey be Bayesian let's look at this data let's actually understand that you know that old thinking is changing led us to players like Tank Dell and and Devontae Smith you remember BMI gate you know we all had this thing can he can he succeed and Yeah, absolutely he can. You know, Jordan Addison's another one. Zay Flowers is another one. There's a lot of these wide receivers that we were all hip to because of what, not just the anatomy, but what it sort of revealed to us. So, yeah, absolutely, 1,000% we're seeing. And and I I try,
0: Chuck, to not necessarily apply this the opposite way, but it does feel like the the wide receivers that we've fallen in love with and seen miss lately – have been the types of guys that we used to think were the only guys who could be number one wide receivers. And I don't want to bring up Akeem Butler's name again, but we've done that a few times on this show. Like those, Those types of guys who have the body and look the part getting off the bus also seem to be the types that have been misses more lately. I wonder if that's because there are still certain general managers in the NFL that are valuing those things.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you hit it right. The proto-prototypical X receiver, the Alpha X, right? I mean, it's it's sadly a dying, a dying art, uh, a dying uh, archetype, you know. And um, what we're seeing is like like Jack said, um, and you kind of touched on, is you know those unconventional, uh, divergent anatomies, right? Players that aren't fit in the typical physical mold of a wide receiver in terms of the height, weight, even BMI, right? <laughs> the BMI shooters out there, uh, pour one out to you. Uh, but, you know, if, 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 if you're undersized, but you're explosive and you're a playmaker, um, then, then that's what we're looking at, right? And I think there's some signal that we can pick up in terms of finding out who's explosive. And, you know, those are the players that might, might be, you know, returning uh, kicks in college, maybe not in the pros, but in college, uh, rush yards, like if, if they're being schemed into the run game a bit. Uh, you know, they're manufacturing touches like the teams are manufacturing touches for these receivers. I think those are things that kind of signal, uh, you know, potential, uh, you know, kind of unconventional, uh, elite receiver. Uh, but yeah, the, the three level threat, the queen chess piece type receivers, you know, the Alpha X's, I mean, you know, seem to be a dying breed these days.
2: Yeah, it's funny, uh, Heath, if I may, you know, I, I was looking at this recently, especially because there's three prospects in this draft Ad Mitchell, um, uh, Brian Thomas. And uh, who's the other one I'm forgetting? But um regardless, and I look back, I'm like, who are these guys? Are they, you know, T. Higgins, uh, Michael Pittman, right? There's been some right. hits, right? Or are they, you know, you said Hakeem Butler, uh, Nikhil Harry, Terrace Marshall? Uh, because it seems like they go either one of two ways, right? You know, they either sort of are hits or complete misses. There's no sort of in between. They, and I think it's what Chalk's even referencing and talking about. It's like that if you're isolated to the outside and you really don't have any sort of special traits, right. you're probably not going to get the ball. If you can move around or if you have special traits, a la A.J. Brown is able to to to, to just catch a slant and, and kill you. Like that's a special trait. Um, right. You know, Michael Pittman is able to really win outside but also move inside and run these intermediate routes. He's a target hog. So we've been looking at also one other thing is like targets earned per route run, things like that, because that led us to Puka Nakua. You know, we were pro Puka. We weren't exactly sure, but you know, we, we, we got there with Puka. We really did. Um, And so a lot of that was just sort of understanding that he was a target earner at, at the college level as well. Whereas Quentin Johnston, not quite as much. He was a sort of a big play guy but he wasn't very special outside so yeah it's, it's a tricky one but I agree with you man it's it's such a puzzle
0: so I want to get back to quarterbacks for just a second because I did see your tweet about um like what what the current anatomy of a top 12 or top 15 quarterback looks like what does that look like and was there anything that you found this year that surprised you
2: um well let me not really um I actually have it on paper too so there you go I got I got myself dialed in, you know, um, actually the thing that was interesting to me, I felt like is like something that might actually disqualify a quarterback, like, uh, completion percentage at the college level, you know, really is a kind of a scary stat when you see a guy like that. And, um, you know, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson and Anthony Richardson were really the only three players that had that sort of scary stat. But then we look at them, and they were just so otherworldly in other ways. So I think sometimes we have to maybe squint a little bit at the quarterback position and and lean into this sort of prolific, you know, um, athletic archetype as well. And that's a bit scary because you know that one's a a coin flip. I mean, who who knows when these guys actually? And look, they do have some issues. I mean, all three of them are not perfect throwers of the football, but in today's game, they're able to make up for it with their you know just unbelievable athleticism and gamesmanship.
0: You can see here, if you're watching on YouTube, we did actually pull the tweet up. You can see what the anatomy of a top 15 quarterback in dynasty looks like, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. There, there it is. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because you look at that stuff. I think that the other big thing and John Lobb talks about it a lot. And I know chalk loves this one is, is actually the, the attempts or, or starts, Um, you know, we've seen Trey Lance, Mitch mm-hmm. Trubisky, quite a few of these guys. Now the, only, the another outlier in this is is Anthony Richardson, which made him scary as a prospect. I said it last year. I mean, I was like, man, this is the scariest prospect yet. He's my quarterback one in dynasty because you know because of the upside. You know, it's right. like, but boy, oh boy, was I scared. I, I was a little bit more scared of um, Trey Lance just because he was the thing about Trey Lance. is He was not this amazing athlete. That's right. the thing that people forget. People are always like, no, no, Konami. The, no, no. Anthony Richardson is a real athlete. He's a Lamar Jackson, Jalen Hurts-level athlete. Trey Lance was never that. So he had to win in the way that all the – like, Brock Purdy's winning, and he was unable to do so. But, yeah, that college experience is huge. Look, a, a player that throws interceptions at a high rate at, in college usually does not change his stripes in the NFL as well. So, yeah, those mistakes. I mean, Josh Allen was
0: one of them, and, and look, people criticized him for that last year. So, um, yeah, there you go. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. I did want just, we'll we'll finish this up here and see if we can apply it at all to rookie drafts that are upcoming in the next couple of months. Is there anybody like when you, when you went through this process this year, any, any prospects that you got more excited about or more concerned about?
2: Uh, Well, for me, it's Malik neighbors. Um, You know, you just look at Malik neighbors. He just looks like an absolutely prototypical stud in the NFL in today's game you right. know, Marvin Harrison is a little bit more of a throwback player in terms of that outside winner. Look, he's exceptional, exceptional out there. So I don't doubt that he's going to be successful in the NFL. But if you told me one of these guys is the, is the, is literally the wide receiver one in dynasty in a year or year and a half. Uh, I I'd pick Malik neighbors over, over Marvin Harrison. I'm not saying he's a better overall prospect because I understand how great, like you just can't convince me that Marvin Harrison isn't, exceptional, but Malik neighbors is, uh,
0: not to be overlooked. That is awesome stuff. Again, thank you, Scott. Thank you, chalk. Go follow these guys on Twitter at dino game theory for Scott at one Oh one chalk for chalk. Go, go check these guys out at the undroppables. You can read all about the art of dynasty, all about the anatomy of and so much more. Go check them out wherever you can find podcasts. Appreciate everybody in the chat today and everybody listening Wherever you can find podcasts, we will talk to you next week.